So there's this comedian uh, named Brian Regan. Anybody heard of Brian Regan? Come on, come on. There's my people. Um, Brian Regan is a comedian who talks a lot about (laughs) um, an experience we all have, perhaps people like me more than some of you, an experience we all have about putting your foot in your mouth. There's a giftedness with words that has a dark side, friends. You know, when you're just like talking and words are coming out and there's no real plan for them, (laughs) there's no coherent thought that's guiding these words coming out of your mouths. Some of y'all have experienced this. You're not going to ask you to raise your hands, but I I have quite a few times. And Brian Regan has this bit where he talks a lot about um, stuff just coming out of his mouth. There's actually a word for it. I started this a few weeks ago. The word's logaria. L-O-G-O-R-R-H-E-A. You may recognize some of this word. It, it, it literally means word flow. It literally means word flow. It's sort of a diary of the mouth. Words just coming out without thinking first. Some of us well acquainted with the concept. Well, in one of his bits that we're going to share with you, it's just an audio bit. Brian Regan talks about that moment when words are coming out, you've said something, they're going somewhere, and they do something that you don't want them to do. There's no recovering from it in that moment. Listen to what he says. I'm always putting my foot in my mouth. I don't stop to think. I just, you know, just go, oh no, words are coming out. Oh no. I'm not thinking what is that. Like, I met this woman recently. I could have sworn she was pregnant. Let me tell you. I know now. I think the rule is uh, don't guess at that ever, 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 Something like that. I didn't have enough evers memorized, you know. So I said, hey, what's that baby do? You ever feel a word coming up, but it's too late to stop it? It's coming, it's coming out and loud. Hey, when's that baby do? Baby! What baby? Oh. At the zoo, the, the pandas. I knew they were trying to have one. I just, you know, thought we'd talk about them. Talk about the fluffy zoo animals that day. I hear they got them over there. You can, you can go look at them and, if you want. Touch them. Okay, so admit it. Anybody... Anybody ever had the wins the baby do moment? You don't have to put your hand up. I know some of you have. I uh, made that error as a high schooler at my home church uh, with a lady there. Uh, Brian is right. Don't guess at that ever, 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 ever. You ever had those moments when you realize that you've said something or you've done something and there is really, there's just no recovering from it. It's out there and it's going to do what they're going to do. No matter what you do, you're not going to be able to undo what you've just done. (laughs) I had a moment early on in ministry. I was a ministry intern at my home church, a youth ministry intern. This was the summer after I graduated from college. And I was basically handed, (laughs) for better or worse, uh, the reins of the summer youth program. And I decided I was going to do movie night with the kids at my parents' house. So there were about 20 of us kids, some adult leaders crammed into my parents' living room. We had just started eating popcorn. And, and mind you, we had just done a Bible study from God's Word, very deep and meaningful and important kind of stuff that we had studied. And, and well, anybody ever seen the movie Dumb and Dumber? 
You can clearly see where this is headed. I'm the dumber one. I pop in right on the heels of this meaningful Bible study. Some of you are cringing out there. On this meaningful Bible study, I pop in dumb and dumber. I should have thought about it, but it was a done deal. We were watching, and I even had a moment about five minutes in when this youth volunteer looks at me, you know, like grandma does above the glasses, that kind of thing, or your mom. I I knew at that moment I should have pulled the plug on the VCR. (laughs) By the way, kids, before the Internet, the VCR was this thing you put a cassette into and, and you'd get it from the store and when you take it back, the kid would give you a look for not rewinding it. Anyway, so here we are on the heels of Bible study and I pop in Dumb and Dumber. I should have known better. I should have pulled the plug. I had an opportunity to, but I didn't. And like Brian Regan says about when's that baby do, now I know. Now let's take stock here for just a second. Mercifully, in the whole scheme of things, verbally misdiagnosing a pregnancy or being (laughs) the dumber part of dumb and dumber are mistakes, to be sure. But they weren't vindictive. They weren't purposely hurtful. They were just foolish, just being unaware Like you can recover from those kinds of moments, those kinds of mistakes. Nobody's out there in the world saying, hey, Scott misdiagnosed my pregnancy or showed me a dumb movie. And and that's why my life stinks. You know, nobody's out there saying that. Although it's kind of debatable if you can't really fully recover from Dumb and Dumber once you've seen it. But what about the kinds of things from which you really can't recover? Like there's no pulling the plug in the VCR. Like what you've said or what you've done is out there. It's happened. It's hurt somebody. And there's no coming back from it. (laughs) There's no unringing that bell. There's no getting the tube, the, the toothpaste back in the tube after it's out on that one. And when you say something or you do something, not, not only is your heart out of kilter as a result, but someone else out there has been damaged by you. What about those things that you've said or you've done or that have been said or done to us? What about those things that break the relationship, that violate personal trust, that end up damaging hearts? Like, like what happens then? How do you fix that what's the recipe for restoring that because you can't just pull the plug and unring that bell it's out there and you've done it or someone's done it or said it to you it's not just a matter of going back and repairing things friends I've been in ministry 20 years and I get a front row seat in lots of people's lives And I guarantee you, this room is filled with people who have experienced terribly deep hurts and pains. And it's filled with people who have themselves inflicted irreparable damage. And I can tell you with good authority that the vast majority of us are in one of those categories, but probably squarely in both. Done to us, done to others. We have inflicted and we have endured sin that is simply not undone or disentangled by our ingenuity 
or our skill or even our good intentions. Which is to say, we all live in a world where we have a sin problem that we cannot fix. Try as we may, most of the time, you will just begin to realize you cannot fix it yourself. This is where Adam and Eve find themselves in our passage today. The sin that happens here between them has changed their relationship with God and each other. Their sin against each other and their sin against God in a way that they could not fix. There was no going back, which means that they needed something. They needed someone outside of themselves to fix this problem because what happened in the garden was one of these can't go back on it moments. Look with me at verse 1 in chapter 3 there. We're going to spend a little more time in the first few verses and then we'll move a little quicker halfway through. It says this, verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. From what the Bible tells us here, sin does not invade the garden from the outside. Sin is spoken of here not as something that, that comes from God, but as something that comes from His creation. Which is to say, friends, sin is spoken of here not as something that comes from God, but as something that comes from His own creature, creation, His own creatures. So don't miss something huge here in the very first verse. From the very beginning, sin was an inside job. From the very beginning, sin was an inside job. When we compromise with evil in our hearts, it's going to become sinful action through our bodies if we give in to those temptations. Watch how this develops. Look at verse 2 here. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Notice how the serpent here, the serpent doesn't actually contradict God. I mean, you'd think that the serpent would throw down this list of arguments against God, but it knows better than that. The serpent simply suggests at this point, in a subtle way, that God's words, not fully to be trusted. Not fully to be trusted. And listen, friends, we're preaching now because this is the root of all sin. The suggestion that God's words are not able to be fully trusted. And the serpent doesn't hear by just suggesting, by just asking the question, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Not outright contradicting God, just asking a question. Flattering Eve into thinking that she knows better for herself than God does. That what God has told her about who she is and why she exists, that that's not going to work. It's just not practical. It's just not tenable. Here's how one scholar says it in this situation here. For the note takers, this is good. The serpent at this point smuggles in the assumption that God's word, and we don't just mean the words in the page. We don't just mean what we hear. We mean the truth that comes from who God is. The serpent at this point smuggles in the suggestion that God's word is subject to our judgment. So, so at this point, without even hardly noticing, 
Eve is debating the truthfulness and the trustworthiness of God on the serpent's terms. Look at verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, which is true. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, which is true. He said that. But he didn't say this. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. That's not true. That's not what he said. God didn't say they couldn't touch it. He said in Genesis 2, previously, they could not eat of it, and that if they did, they would die. Now, notice here, notice here, that she has overcorrected in, in her thinking. She has overcorrected and made God's word more strict, which is a way to claim more knowledge and skill and expertise than God. Thus was born at this moment the first legalist who exaggerated God's command (laughs) and the first wimp afraid to speak up for God's command. In Adam and Eve. Because as we'll see in verse 6 later on, Adam is standing right next to her at this moment. So both Adam and Eve's responses to this serpent's suggestion that the truth of God can't be fully trusted, both of their responses are perversions of the truth of God. One has tightened God's command, the other has loosened it. Now listen closely, friends. Human rebellion is rooted in making God's commands tighter or looser than they are meant to be. For most of us, one of those two words describes how we interact with the truth of God. So the serpent here has suggested that God's word, that the truth that comes from God's heart is subject to our judgment. And Adam and Eve are nodding their heads, yes, in agreement, at which point the serpent here seizes the opportunity. It knows that he's got them hooked on self, on their own knowledge. And so the serpent extends this lie of self-knowledge versus God's knowledge. Look at verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. I mean, you're not going to surely die. You of all people, come on, you know better, Eve. Adam doesn't know what you need. God doesn't know what you need. They don't really care. They don't really know. You are special. You are an exception. You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. He's going to be jealous of you. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God's just trying to keep his goodness from you, Eve. He doesn't really want to share his glory and his riches with you. He is stingy. He is selfish. Eve, you'd better take care of you and get yours because he doesn't want to share with you. I don't know about you, friends, but I know that's how I operate with a lot of things in my life. I I don't trust, so I'm going to get mine. Which isn't just about other people. It's about how we interact with God. You better take what you can now, because He does not want to share. And that's part of what continues to lead us down the path of being in a sin problem we can't fix. It even feels good as we're doing it, let's be honest. In a sense, in the short term, distrust feels good because it feeds what we think we need. 
So watch this develop for her and for Adam. So when the woman saw, verse 6, this was not with her eyes yet, but with her heart. When she perceived, verse 6, that the tree was good for food because it nourishes her and that it was delight to the eyes because it was pretty. That's what she actually did see there uh, visually. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, at least she thought so. When those were the case, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband. Remember we said Adam was with her. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. Now at this point, listen, both are fully engrossed in rebellion against God's ways. Remember we said sin's an inside job. The fruit they ate was just the outward behavior from the inward motivation of self. (laughs) They've listened to the wisdom of a creature rather than the creator. To their own impressions instead of God's instructions. Listen, friends, personal identity is formed from who we are trusting as our authority. That will always bear itself out. Personal identity, who you are, why you're here, what you're doing, is always formed from who we are trusting as our authority. Who we believe as our authority, who we trust will ultimately determine who we are and what we do. And Adam and Eve are like us. We trust creatures around us more than we do God's plans for us because we feel like we have to get ours. We've learned we have to distrust others. But look at where it takes us. Verse 7, the eyes of both were opened and they knew they were naked. They now knew that they were sinners who had rebelled against God and conspired against one another in it. They now knew that they were headed for death because, listen, they had aided and abetted one another in this descent into rebellion against God. And so what did they do? How do you fix this? What do you do when you have this problem that needs to be fixed? You know it. You're ashamed of it. What do you do with your sin? We, we, we typically do what they did. Look at verse 7. They sewed fig leaves together. You get to work. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Rather than seeking God's help, which was available then, they're in the garden, in a relationship with God. Rather than seeking God's help, they did exactly what we all do when we're shamed by our sin. They went right to work, atoning for themselves, making up for their lack with their own work. They covered themselves, it's almost humorous really, with the biggest leaves they could find in the garden as if they didn't know it was under there. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. I mean, think of how silly of a fix that is for sin. So they had a problem they couldn't fix. But even in the garden, friends, even in the middle of sin and rebellion and foolishness and brokenness, blame shifting, having messed it up, there was hope available. Even then, look at this, verse 8. 
They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day. That, that's the grace. That's the hope. That's the, the possibility of relationship being, uh, being fixed because of God as the source of hope. There was an opportunity there to experience grace, but instead they continued to choose, as we do, a self-management of sin. Keep reading. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden, which again is silly, as if he couldn't know where they were. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? He's trying to draw them out. He's trying to to draw them out. But fear and blame shifting became the tools that they used to manage their sin. Verse 10, he said, this is Adam, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And so he, God, verse 11 said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you gave me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. It's her fault. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you've done? And the woman said, It's the serpent's fault. The creature that you created. The serpent deceived me and I ate. Ultimately, she's saying, Really, God, this is your fault. That creature that you created. So here we are at this point with Adam and Eve. Sin, rebellion, broken relationship, hurt feelings, shifting of blame. It's all there in a big, ugly, they-can't-fix-it mess. And even then, in the garden, when they had broken what had been perfect relationship with a God who loved them, when there was no undoing what they had done, even then there was hope. There was a pointer to what we're here today to celebrate. Jump down to verse 21 in Genesis 3. Notice who initiates this. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife, not fig leaves, but garments of skin and clothed them. Listen, Adam and Eve, fig leaves ain't going to do it. <laughs> you need real coverings for your sin that, that, that I can provide for you. Friends, the bottom line is this. You cannot disentangle by human effort a broken relationship with your Creator. Science, reason, government, art, doing good, human effort cannot undo what sin does to break our relationship with our Creator. We think we can fix this ourselves. (laughs) We think we can. But live long enough and you begin to learn you cannot fix your sin problem yourself. You're not good enough. You're not skilled enough. You're not smart enough. You cannot work hard enough. You don't know enough. And as it turns out, you are literally not holy enough to fix this. Only a perfect and sinless being outside of us, above us, greater than us, can disentangle this mess of our sin. There has to be provision 
to make up for it. And it has to come from an untainted and a pure and a holy source that can actually provide. Because you see, anything less than an actual undoing of sin by a perfect sacrifice doesn't work. Don't believe that lie that it does, because it doesn't. Sin is bad enough that it needs actual provision by a perfect sacrifice that works to bring us back to relationship with God. So, I'm standing among trees and stars and lights and bows. (laughs) It's obviously Christmas. And even in the garden, the promise of provision was made. Look at Matthew 121 on screen here real quick. About 2,000 years ago, an angel brought news that God had come to earth to disentangle our sin, our mess, our sin problem. Speaking of Mary, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Friends, it requires a perfect sacrifice to undo what we can't. And let me just say here in the season of Christmas at the beginning, if we bypass the truth that we need a Savior, all of the family nostalgia and good cooking and fun presents and tinsel on the tree ain't going to bring you to the truth that we are here to celebrate a God who loved us enough to do what we needed for us, to provide by Himself, through His Son Jesus, a perfect, sinless sacrifice who was sacrificed for us. You see, it works because Jesus was perfect. He was sinless. And that provision for us gives us hope you cannot otherwise have. And so when you're wrapping presents, putting up decorations, may you remember (laughs) that the reason we celebrate in this season is because we have hope that Jesus provides a perfect relationship with our Creator God and we will live with Him forever as a result of His coming. Let's pray, friends.